record. Hey guys, so welcome to this week's Q&A. Um, starting to pick up more and more questions now we've opened it up to more than just training. So we've got like bang on 50 minutes. So uh, we're probably just gonna jump straight in on this one. There's quite a wide variety of questions on here. So this one should be quite fun. So what I'll do is I'll leave my question till last just because um, if we don't get enough, I'd rather get listener questions in and then leave kind of like our ones till the end about the stuff yeah, we want to talk good. about. So Mark Bruce has put cut or bulk, which I then commented on being like, that's not really a question. I don't really understand it. Um, so after a bit of digging, um, sorry, demeaning relation to body fat. So, so how far should you let your body fat come up on a bulk before cutting? Um, so I'm happy to answer this one just because this is kind of my area of expertise. So for me, what I'll normally do is when I take on a client, I'll get them to send them, I'll get them to send before photos so we can establish kind of where their body composition is. So basically what happens is when your body composition gets above a certain level, it's gonna to start to suppress things like testosterone and the other kind of muscle building hormones. So when people say that they should, you basically, no matter what, you should just bulk, uh, build muscle first, and then use that to kind of strip away the fat. Yes and no. If somebody's completely new to the gym, they can build muscle and burn fat at the same time. Whereas if you have been away from the gym for a little while and come back, that's pro uh, like, and you're relatively well-trained, that might not happen at the same rate. So to the actual question, how far should you let your body fat go up before kind of doing a cut? What I'll normally do is want to start to taper off somewhere between 20 and 25%. Any higher than 25% and you're going to be starting to interfere with things like your hunger levels, your insulin sensitivity, and all those things that are going to help you build muscle, which at the end of the day, we don't just want to get fat on a bulk. We want to be building muscle and we want to be in the optimum place for that. So this is why if somebody comes to me and they're somewhere around like their 15, 17% body fat mark, we'll actually do a cut first. We want to bring them down as close to 10% as we can, just because then that gives me 15 17 and a half percent of body fat to come on during a bulk, which means we can have a nice three, six, nine months spent in a calorie surplus building. Whereas if you come in at 20% and go straight onto a bulk, you've only got 5% to play with, which might mean you're only going to be bulking for like 12 weeks, if that. Um, so that's my kind of personal take on it. Like, do you feel anything different, Dan? Uh, pretty much the same. I think if you naturally, what's your natural kind of body shape? I think some guys, if they do get too low and they're naturally heavier guys or fatter guys, um, I do think they will struggle to bulk. I think you have to work with what you naturally are. So most bodybuilders um, <clears throat> tend to be very sort of lean, athletic individuals anyway. So they can tend to be on that lower edge. Um, for guys that are, you know, probably like myself, carry a bit more timber, I actually find when you get lean and then build up again, um, you kind of jump straight back to where you were anyway beforehand. It's hard to explain. Like, I've got no science behind this, but just from um, looking at things um, with my eyes. Um, if you're naturally a heavier guy, 
then be that naturally a bit heavier and then just gradually build up. Basically the bulking in the cut is whatever you're, um, the cut, the bulk is whatever you're comfortable with. If you know, if you're comfortable, you know, I'm personally comfortable walking around, you know, 25%. If I went up to that to bulk, I wouldn't, it wouldn't really bother me. So I would push into that and then keep pushing. Um, but then like you say, you're going to have a lot harder time coming down, but it all depends where you're trying to get to. I mean, if you'd like stage lean, yeah, it's probably not a good idea to go over that at all. Um, if you're kind of wanting to look huge in a t-shirt and look really good and be really strong, you probably don't necessarily have to get that. That, I don't think you need to get down to that 10%. But um, I would say don't go uh, work with what you naturally are, is what I kind of always go with, basically. You know, it, 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 it's, it's kind of, it sounds very like a bit weird, but it kind of makes sense. Like if you're a big, big dude um, and you want to bulk, all right, well, bulk, that's fine if you want to. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to explain. We'll make a bit of a mess of it, really. But uh, if you're naturally bigger, then you're, you're going to start, you're going to probably gain muscle better being a bit heavier instead of trying to do this super lean bulk. Um, if you're an actually a thin guy, you'll probably find you'll gain weight fine. Whereas for me, if I, if I dropped too much weight when I was like down to about 105 or less, I would struggle to have the strength and um, the size to, uh, the strength to gain the size. But when I sort of let myself get to around the 112 and 15 mark, then it went up really easy. Makes sense. So I think that's just, from the kind of different backgrounds that we're thinking. Obviously, I'm coming from more of like a body composition, people trying to get into like photo shoots or drop body fat sort of background. Those are the main clients that I kind of work with, whereas as yourself, you're working with more performance-based, strength-based athletes. So, um, yeah, as you how said... Do, it'll, how, how do you tell a natty bodybuilder? Pardon? How do you tell a natural bodybuilder? I don't know. We can't because they just look thin in a t-shirt. <laughs> yeah, they do actually. <laughs> they look big when they take their top off, otherwise they look tiny. Oh yeah. Um, oh mate, like I was getting all the, are you okay? Like remarks and stuff when I was in that final four weeks of that cut. Um, which really messes with your mind when your calories are that low. So um, <laughs> next one is top five home gym speciality bars. So good question about the idea of a trap bar, but can't justify the space. So then we went on and had a bit of a discussion about trap bars. So yeah, five top five speciality bars. So as we we well, we had a little bit of chat a chat in the admin group the other day. I don't have that many. Well, I don't have any speciality bars, um, and I was accused of being a poor PT for that. But um, it's just I haven't really been exposed to them and at the end of the day for my clients I don't really need them with it being body comp I need just a barbell and some dumbbells it is something that I'm gonna look into just because I like safety bar squats um but again it's that expense for the kind of like specific usage of those bars so what kind of speciality bars do you think uh, would be good for people to have because to be honest, they're not a staple. It's for people that like to train and like to we, have yeah, that variation in there. Are we saying different kind of barbells like Olympic bar, a deadlift bar, squat bar? Is that speciality or is that just considered a straight bar, a variation? Um, I think, I'm not sure. I, I don't know. Like, well, we'll see, we'll I know with deadlift bars, they've got like whip and stuff in it, haven't they? Because I don't really yeah, understand yeah, so that. I think, but I'll, I'll try and think along speciality bars and then if I run out of ideas then I'll think more along the lines of those so yeah. my number one would be a safety squat bar yeah 
Now, one really is bad. a great, um, it's a great builder for the squat, really hits your posterior chain really nice and hard. It's kind of halfway between a back squat and a front squat. Yeah. So for a lot of guys that really struggle with front squatting and girls, uh, just put them on a safety bar, it's great. And um, if you've ever got really heavy on a safety squat bar, you'll, you'll see what it's like. It's, it's a tough bar to squat with. Um, it really kind of pitches you forward a little bit, especially when I've got, when I've got one of the old strength shop version one bars, which is a suicide bar, really. It's just... It's nuts the way it moves. Not, they don't all do that. But, um, I would go safety squat bar. My next choice would probably be a solid axle um, to press with. They're phenomenal. If you've never pressed an axle, give it a go. It is actually harder, but it just feels better. It feels right, but it feels hard. Interesting work on there with it. It's, it just works. But when you pick the bar up, it weighs about 35 kilos em, uh, empty just on the bar. And in your hands, it just feels really nice. Pick, particularly some of the guys that get a bit of shoulder pain benching. Um, and a bit of wrist pain when benching. I find putting him on a solid bar really helps. Donnie Thompson goes on and on about it. Um, he, he only benches with that bar. It's a very, very good bar. Uh, my third bar would be a bow bar. Uh, I really like squatting with my bow bar. It has got some, uh, some downfalls. Um, it does pitch you forward slightly when you squat with it, but you know that could actually bring up, bring up your upper back a bit more. And it has a nice bow. So if you get some pain, which a lot of guys and girls do from squatting in your wrists or your elbows or even your shoulders, it really does take the strain off, particularly in a low bar squat. It really helps build that. That just because the arm position is just that little bit lower with it bowing. Yeah, the, 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 the camera of the bar just sits really nicely on your back. It just feels like if you, if you, you can't really see, if you hold your hands up, you don't. Hold your hands up like this. Um, no. you, think, well, you, you, you squat like that. When you're squatting, you're making the effort to do that. You're trying to yeah. hook around the bar, um, your back. Well, with that bar, it just does it anyway. It just really sets yeah. you up. So then my, three, my fourth one would be a camber bar. I think that's another fantastic variation bar. You can do lots of things with that. You know, we talked about that for the overhead pressing last week. Phenomenal um, squat builder, that bar. Um, really, really tough to squat with. You have to kind of put it a bit higher on your back because it's so thick and it really moves around. It's a very difficult bar to squat with, but anything that makes things slightly harder for me is a good idea. I quite like the idea of that. And then my fifth one for me, we're probably, are we saying logs a specialty bar? I don't know, probably not. We'll put log out because that's more strong man. So uh, I think a Swiss bar would be good um, to change the angle. You know, they're very yeah. popular at the moment in the, um, in the group for very good reason. They just change yeah. the angle, keep you in a more neutral position, bit of variation and it's a great bar to press with. So they would be better. Yeah. Um, so yeah, my five, I think three off that list definitely, which would be the safety bar, uh, some sort of axle, and then the Swiss bar. Uh, the other two that I would include would be a, a like a three quarters hex bar, um, just because I've used that quite well with Jay's training, doing things like farmer's walks and walking lunges and stuff like that, just because we can load that up more than he can hold physically kind of with his dumbbells. So it's helped us in that kind of respect. And one that um, I'm having a little bit of a play around with at the moment uh, is the earthquake bar, which, because I'm working with Elliot now. So that just makes things like a little bit more unstable. So I used to replicate it in the gym by having a normal barbell, getting two uh, thick resistance bands and then hanging kettlebells from it. So if you get somebody to do like a lunge with that and you accelerate up, but then you've got to just hold it at that top position as you accelerate up, obviously the bands are going to move and then it's really, really testing the core as well as kind of all the stabilizer muscles. Um, but the earthquake bar just does that without having to hammer bands and kettlebells and all that kind of setup. Apologies about the, um, helicopter that seems to be passing over. I don't know if you can hear that. Um, but yeah, those kind of would be my five anyway. Right, what's the next question? 
Okay, so mouth taping slash nose breathing for exercise. Is it a fad or does it have some benefits? By the way, migraines are better after upping calorie intake. Must have been a blood sugar thing. That's from Daniel Smith. I'm guessing you had a bit of a chat with him uh, on DMs then because I don't think we talked no, about it. No, no, I didn't. Um, cool. It worked. Uh, uh, yeah, I guess up your calories. You found a fix. Fuck it. Go with it. If it's, it sorted you out, it sorted you out. In terms of mouth taping, nose breathing, I don't know. I can't see why it would have any benefits. I understand the nose breathing. I've not done, I've not heard of mouth taping before. That's something I have to do some more research. So is it? The I've seen it for sleeping, uh, but yeah, I've not seen the Hoff, for this. Um, so the Hoff Windman or something like that. Basically, it's, with, yeah. Uh, it's basically the idea that our nose is perfectly adapted for breathing. It's got little hairs in there. It's got mucus. It traps and filters the air. Our mouth does not have the same amount of filters. And so... It's so all about kind of like air quality. So when you breathe through your nose, it's like you're drinking like perfectly filtered, Brita filtered, like top quality water. Whereas when you breathe through your mouth, the analogy that I got told is like you're drinking uh, bath water that a rugby team's just kind of been in just because the amount of kind of like impurities and everything like that. So it's in terms of recovery, um, nose breathing has been shown to increase the amount of, it's all to do with fight or flight as well. So when you are shallow breathing through your mouth, you're only using about a third of your lung capacity and the quality of the air that's getting in there isn't great because it's full of like particles and blah, blah, blah. Whereas when you actively breathe through your nose, take a deep breath in through your nose and out through your mouth, because you're actively controlling that, in theory, you should be able to use more of your uh, lung capacity by activating the parasympathetic nervous system and therefore helping to recover between sets faster. That's the kind of the basic idea behind it. I know there's a lot of research into it at the moment, but the jury's kind of still out. If you're doing like 100 kilo, 150 kilo squats for sets of like six to 10, you're probably gonna have to breathe through your mouth for a little while do just to get enough kind of oxygen in. So, I don't know a single person that does it. So yeah. that, that's all the evidence I need. It might, but I don't know a single person that's going to breathe through their nose when they're working. Yeah. Yeah. That's just my exactly. idea. <laughs> okay. So next question. What is the best way to train in the days slash weeks building up to attempting a new PB slash one RM and then on the day, best way to warm up and attempt said lift? Um, I'll let you take this one because I don't really do that much 1RM testing. So I'm guessing he's talking about like tapering. Um, he's talking about peaking. Uh, so best way to train in the days, weeks. Uh, how many weeks out, uh, how many days out is the thing there. Um, it all depends. How, how long was your cycle? How long was your training program? What, you know, how long was your block going into it? So it could be 12 weeks, eight weeks, four weeks. I mean, I'm going to... What is the best way to train the days, weeks? I'm going to say it's a bit of an open-ended one, that one. Um, basically, as you get in towards your goal of a 1RM, let's say, you know, let's talk about we're doing a, a powerlifting competition or whatever. Uh, you're, going to tr you're going to get very specific to that one lift. So your variations, you're still going to have variations, but they're going to be very minimal. So you're going to go from things, um, you know, potentially like high. Let's say if you're talking about the squat here, let's say if your comp squat is a low bar, um, uh, Ollie shoes off, belt, knee wrap, um, 
sleeve squat. You're going to start probably dropping your high bar, you know, Ollie shoes, um, beltless work. You're going to drop maybe some of the banded stuff. You're going to drop some of the accessory, a lot of the accessory work you're going to take out um, towards the lifting. You're going to get very specific. So you're going to do lots of practicing. So you're going to be doing things like, lifting it around sort of 90 to very specific, maybe 95 percent for singles in the weeks prior up as practice so you're going to do some rpa singles um, maybe some rp9 ones getting close to that so you're practicing the lift as it is but you're going to do enough training to get uh, to sort of display the strength that you've done from all the stimulus you've had in the weeks before so hopefully you've put the groundwork in done all your fives done your big volumes got all your sets and reps in uh, and then we you're going to start tapering down so you're trying to um, reduce the fatigue because uh, fatigue does mass performance so what we're trying to do is bring that right down up to the day where you can really give yourself the best chance of displaying your true strength on the day so in the few days leading up to it you're probably going to lift up to around 80 85 percent in the week um, you're going to probably stop around two three days out but whatever feels mentally best uh, i've had some guys stop altogether a week before i've had some guys stop one to two days beforehand i normally personally like to take two or three days off before i lift i start off the week you know pretty much hitting my openers and then dropping them right down so we're still talking pretty decent percentages enough to not lose our performance so you want to stay what we call fit in terms of, um for powerlifting staying fit is being able to display that one rem max some guys find on bench they need to keep the um, frequency in uh, right up to the day because they find that's a lift that needs a lot of practice before they get into it in terms of on the day attempting it warm up do your mobility drills you like um do your whatever you need to do get in the zone get your music on to do your positive talk do your visualize um, is it visualizing? Yeah. Visualization. Visualization. There you go. Yeah. Um, get your positive mindset on. In terms of percentages, work your way up. So, you know, start with the bar, plate, couple of plates, couple more plates, couple more plates, then start thinking about what you're going to start lifting. I then like to go singles from about 70%-ish onwards. I don't like to overdo the warm-ups. I like to do, what you know, five reps to start, then three, then three, then just go down to singles. Uh, I find you need to get up to around that sort of nine, like 85, 90%. I find about 90%. Once you've hit that, you'll start to know how you're feeling. So you'll hit around 90%, then you can get around sort of 93-ish, and then you're going to know from doing that lift what it feels like. So you're going to do, I, I like to do just below my current R, well, one rep max. Uh, and then probably go for my current one max but i probably normally go a little bit over but then the aim of the day is to lift more if we're going for that one rm so i would do my one up to one my warm-up to my one max to so say if i was going for 300 kilo deadlift i would probably have my last lift at 270 and then after lifting 270 i would know if i'm good for the 300 or not and then basically you've got you've got your target of what you want for the day of what you think you can lift and work backwards from that. So, you know, on a bench press, you're looking probably at five kilo at the most, maybe a 10 kilo jump. You can, you know, it depends what you're confident with and then working backwards from there. So do your, get quite heavy for your single, you know, 85%-ish, then look around 90, then start pushing more towards where you want to end up. And that's, that's pretty much yeah. it. I mean, I just like yeah. basically what I do for a living, but um, yeah, general terms are. Yeah, well, I'm going to tell you now, mate, like when I retire from bodybuilding, and uh, if I want to give uh, a bit of powerlifting a go, I know he's going to be uh, sorting out my training plan, um, just because that just went. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is where powerlifting coaches get a bit of cocky. They're like, oh, it's so much more, you know, to it than bodybuilding. There's a more, more specific and all that. It's, it's just different, you know, it is different. Yeah. Um, yeah, you, you do, you can, you know, I've seen some of the strongest guys I know have some of the most basic programming I know and they go to Tesco and I just want to give it a go. I've yeah. hit PBs when I've literally gone into the gym. It's not on the plan. I've gone, I felt quite good today. And boom, something comes out of nowhere. 
you know, we give all the, what, what, what we're trying to do with these kind of things is give yourself the best chance according to, you know, science, best practice, people's experience. That's what we're trying to do. But you can yeah. do all of this and still turn up on the day and it just goes to shit. Everything. Yeah. And you can and I think it's as well, it's about finding what works for you as an individual. Like, as you said, you, that's come from years and years of doing it yourself. Also, we're kind of working with clients. So that's like a skeleton structure, whereas you need to find out what works for you just like with bodybuilding like with your um water loading and salt and like your carb loading up like that is what messes up a lot of people on show day is that even like competition to competition things can be completely different like in my first competition we tried salt loading and i retained a shed load of water so my uh legs were just um they just didn't look as lean as they had in my photos like four or five days before whereas on the second competition didn't even touch salt during the kind of the water loading phase and i actually came in heavier but i looked more shredded so i think it's yeah it's remember that everybody's different and what works for one might not necessarily work for everyone so find your own way okay your go-to warm-up slash mobility drills before a lifting session so do you have like anything specific like i will often i recommend out this just because it's not something that i specialize in so there's um the agile eight which is a little warm-up routine made by somebody called joe defranco uh and he's got a if you just type it in on YouTube, it just brings it up and it's, it's just great. It takes that off my hands because I haven't had to then design that. But have you got anything like specific? Um, in the past, I've been very much empty bar, plate, 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 plate until you hit your thing. And I've always done that. And that served me well for about 15 years or so, maybe more. Uh, now I'm having to tweak things a little bit because of injuries. Um, yeah. So I'm now, I'm now spending a bit more time warming up and mobilizing but i don't i'm not a big fan of doing stretching or that kind of stuff i like to get activated before i lift because quite often your yeah. mobility restrictions aren't necessarily going to be in flexibility issues sometimes it's just muscles aren't really doing the job they're meant to or they're weak so yeah. or doing some squats with the knee pain i've been getting i've been doing a lot of hip aeroplanes glute banded walking and a bit of sort of single leg work just before i get into lifting i found some good um experience with the the wedding warm-ups so four sets of 25 so doing 300 reps before you get started you know you're not going to not be warm if you do 300 reps before you go to a squat so there is yeah. obviously it brings a little bit of fatigue with it and for some guys it's quite hard to handle uh, accepting that fatigue and knowing you're not going to be your best but also puts a little bit of a break um on your performance knowing that you can't fully um do 100 percent, so you kind of put the brakes on a little bit and it's a, it's a good warm-up it helps you with getting prepared um but then when you're trying to reach you know 100 100 maybe i wouldn't recommend it if you're trying to go absolutely 100 but um it is a very good warm-up to get yourself you need to stop bringing the baby uh, <laughs> yeah sorry she one. just got in with yeah. the baby i heard her crying yeah, so yeah, i could yeah. still hear you the headset which might be yeah, why yeah, you might so, got a bit yeah. of background noise of frozen going on there just because yeah, my daughter decided that she didn't want to take a nap today so oh, yeah, joshua is uh joshua's watching her i'm watching the dog the dog just managed to get out as i went to go and rescue the post that had just gone yeah. so yeah i think that pretty much covers that one so it's each of their own so me personally if i'm doing like a heavy leg day i will 
static stretch my hip flexors is probably the only muscle I static stretch before doing a session and then it's more uh, just like you said uh, glute activation work um, and then it's just getting under the bar and greasing the groove so starting at the bar uh, so for example on deadlifts because I'm working up to uh, about 180 at the moment I might do the bar then 50% 60% and then but each set as it goes up obviously the reps drop down just so you're not kind of yeah accumulating that fatigue over them like I think people yeah. have got a bit nuts for warming up and mobilizing like this whole people are saying whole fucking training systems based on warming up and it just blows my mind I'm like fair enough you make make your money where you can but Jesus Christ, I go into a, go into the weight room, go see any, you know, one that's been, see who's been lifting the longest and then see what they've done to keep lifting the longest. Yeah. You know, if it's start light and build up, that is a warm up. You can't get more specific than getting in a squat and doing that. If you yeah. know, like for me, my left hip is, I've got a lot of issues there. I need to get that moving a bit more. So what you yeah. do is even if you start, oh, here's a good, you can start with, you know, your agile leg, all that kind of stuff. But what you need to start doing is nitpicking what is the stuff that you actually need. And it might be a lot yeah. less than you think. Just because everyone says, you've got to do this, you've got to activate that, you've got to try that. It might be you just need a bit of, um, upper, you know, it's never going to do you any harm to work on your upper back and work on your glutes before you start squatting or doing anything. You know, yeah. 20 band aparts, you know, uh, a few hip thrusts, thrusts. It's never going to be a bad thing. But then you yeah. want to do is quite working out what's good and what's not. The weird thing is, the days when I spend time warming up, I always have a shit sessions. The days when I have the bestest I've ever lived, I haven't warmed up at all so it's just something yeah. else but that you know <laughs> this uh this next question is quite fun so what one piece of equipment from your home gym would you take with you to use as defense or as a weapon against zombies if there was a zombie apocalypse and why right i thought about this i know chris well but i thought about this i was like because i was thinking in my head there like, I, i'd like i think a mace would be good but i don't own a mace so i can't claim yeah. that weapon and um, that's why I was thinking as well. Yeah, it makes me class. I've got a hammer um, for tire slams uh, hits, but I was like, that'd be really good. But you know, you've got the you've got the distance. You have to rev it up each time and swing it around. They could, yeah. you know, rush you. What kind of zombies are we talking about? Are we talking about you know twenty eight days? Yeah. Are we yeah. Your, your typical zombies. So I was like, I think that'd be a bit too big. I've got like maybe a little barbell or a, a plate, but then it's quite cumbersome, isn't it? Then yeah. what I would think would be quite good. I haven't got them in here at the moment, but is, you know, the adjustable Olympic dumbbell hands. Yeah, yeah. Like, because they've got some, you know, they're quite easy to hold. They're only about six yeah. kilos. You've got a good and bit of, uh, you know, pole either side. I was like, double just add in, yeah. That was going to be my go-to as well. Like, was it? Yeah. Like little 2.5s on it or something. It'd be like a knuckle. Yeah, yeah, because you, you, like, you could hold them like, that, you know, lengthways or like that or like a glove and yeah. you could probably get some dual wielding action on. I think yeah. that'd be a pretty good one. The other so. thing that I thought would be, you know, like on the squat rack, the safety bars, like making a, oh, like yeah. a shank out of one of those. like, And then you've got like a, a stabbing sort of. Yeah. Up. It's not quite as long as an Olympic bar, but it's still got a decent amount of weight to it. And yeah, you sharpen up one end and then... You've got to think you're going to be out of the wilderness for a while, isn't you? Like, yeah. you know, what's, what's that show called? The Walking Dead or whatever. So you've got to think like long-term, what, what's not going to fatigue you too much? So I've got, yeah. just, got a little tricep bar there. That could be quite cool. Like, yeah. And like, guns, guns are great, but they make a lot of noise and they run out of ammo. Whereas like, stabby stabby, like you've got that forever. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I don't have a gun in my home, Jimmy. Yeah, I've got some trophies that could be quite good, actually. Yeah. I've got some, oh, do you know? Ah, oh, I've got a fucking knife in my. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, hang on. Really 
Oh God, why has he got a knife in his gym? Oh dear. There you go. Britain's natural strongest man, 105, 2014, I think. I came third and I got a knife. But the winner's got axes, so that'd be good. But that, that's got a nice point. There you go. That's in my gym. Yeah. I'm claiming this as well. Claim that one. Yeah, and strap it to the end of one of those poles. Spear, perfect distance. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that was, that was quicker than I thought it was going to be. I think because we've seen that question beforehand, We've had a lot of time to think about it. Oh, yeah, um, that was probably uh, my favourite question I've had so far. <laughs> yeah. So, Cliff. So, I've been bulking since I started two years ago, just to put on weight from 9 stone to 12 stone 7. Never done any cutting. I would like to have a breather from consuming so much food. I'm worried as my metabolism is crazy. I want to keep the weight and still train hard. I'm about 4,500 calories a day, sometimes 5,000. Can't spend my days thinking of food and prepping so much. Any ideas would be great. I don't really get the question. I think he's saying he wants to start cutting. I think. Um, okay, so if you're on four and a half, five thousand calories a day, drop two hundred and see what's happening with your weight. Keep your training yeah. the same. Keep your steps the same. Keep everything the same. Drop two hundred calories. If you start starting to drop down weight, perfect. You've put yourself into a deficit. You could also create that deficit by walking more or doing a little bit of cardio depends on how often you're training but if you're not wanting to consume so much food the easiest thing you're going to be able to do is just drop 200 calories and see what happens if you don't start dropping weight drop another 100 calories until you're starting to lose probably half a kilo a week uh, depends 12 and a half stone what's that going to be in kilos uh that's what 75 80 kilos maybe yeah. Yeah, so you're looking for about 1% drop each week for it to be body fat rather than muscle mass. It would all depend on where your body fat is to kind of start off with and what the long-term goal is. So if you want to be aesthetic, then start kind of dropping your body fat down. If you just want to be strong as fuck, like, why are you worrying? Like, there's no need to worry about it. Like, if you can eat that much food and stay relatively lean, just continue to get stronger. Um, there's no need to do cutting and bulking cycles um, unless you kind of ha have to. At two years, are you going to be out in the newbie gains phase? Probably, but making sure you're progressive overloading, got a decent program that you're following. If you're doing more high intensity, low volume training, maybe switch it up to like a lower intensity, higher volume training. Switching up the training styles might give you a little bit of a spur on and kind of start building new tissue. But you, you just need to be more specific kind of with your goal. You've said that you've had enough of bulking, but what is the end result that you're wanting? Um, it sounds like maybe he just wants to eat less food. Like yeah. He's happy with their size, but he just doesn't want to eat so much. Which um, if you're dropping food down, then you should hit maintenance. So Yeah, I would say just you know what donald said just just reduce it slowly every week keep an eye on it and if it's if you're maintaining weight there you go Good great um right so best way to build abs okay um <sighs> don't don't build abs don't worry about <laughs> don't build abs <laughs> um no seriously though like in terms of abs the jury's out i think every yeah 
people have got sick, sick abs from um, eating really well and really yep. shredding up. Everyone's got abs there under there. You just have to kind of display them. Um, yep. I hate sit-ups with a passion because I think they're back destroyers. I really don't yep. like them. Don't do those. But in terms of building abs, you know, say for saying for strength and all that, front squats are fantastic. Uh, things like snatch grip, this are really good. Uh, stuff like that is fantastic. Uh, yoke runs, um, farmers walks are good for your abs. Uh, so best way to build. I mean, build. I went. <sighs> You know, uh, ab wheel. I'm going to ask her very basically. Basically, ab wheels are really good. Um, hanging leg raises, they're all right, but you can hit your hip flexors a bit more than your lower abs on those. But if, I find if you flatten your back out right, you can work them quite hard. Uh, they're probably my best ways to build them. Weighted carries, very heavy compounds, and then ab wheel rollouts, I think, are phenomenal. If you've never done them, give them a go. You'll be sore for days after doing them. So, yeah. and then um, offset walking is really good as well, but I guess that's more obliques than abs. Um, so, I think the ab wheel is my favourite. Like, I really, yeah. really, really like the ab wheel. You well, uh, what's I can't remember the name of the doctor that works with juggernaut training. The doctor Mike. Uh, yeah, he's done a really good series on YouTube about like the frequency of training like particular muscle groups, and I really liked his one about abs because basically it's that like minimum amount you need to train them per week is actually zero sets because your squats, your bench, your deadlift, all the big compounds will actually train them enough to um, maintain. But if you, at the end of the day, it's a muscle. So it can hypertrophy. You can make the ab muscles within themselves. So if you look at like men's physique athletes, their abs are definitely hypertrophy. Like if you just look at their, there's no way that, if you look at some people when their body fat gets really low down, their tummy is like flat. Whereas the men's physique models, they're, they're like a little pocket. It looks really, really weird. So yes, you can hypertrophy your abs. However, if you've got 15, 20, 25% body fat sitting over the top of them, you're probably not going to be able to see them. And again, down to genetics, I'm quite genetically gifted as in the majority of my body fat actually goes onto my back. So even at 20, 20 between 20 and 25% body fat, I can still see abs. Whereas other people won't start to see abs until their body fat is getting down under 10%. Um, however, if you're like 7.5% body fat or you claim to be 7.5% body fat, don't see abs, you're not 7.5% body fat. I saw that on somebody's thread the other day. And yeah, right. I was going to comment and just be like, that person wasn't 7.5% body fat. They can't have been. It's not physically possible. Um, but in terms of the favorite ways for me to train abs, um, I put it on somebody's thing the other day. It's the dragon flag and all the ways up to being able to do that. So that's, uh, is it Rocky three where he fights the Russian guy? Do you know where he's in the barn and he's got the, his hands over his head and his torso yeah. basically. The reverse ab curls and those, they're really good. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, um, doing all the regressions to be able to do that basically just cause it's, an eccentric abs exercise so it causes a lot and helps to balance out as well the discrepancy between like upper abs which are kind of uh, cause that hypotic sort of posture and the lower ones and kind of helping with hips and everything like that okay so we should leave my one for the time being just in case these questions what are the pros slash cons of deadlifting in a suit that's from naomi so I'm guessing she means competition-wise. I've never used a deadlift suit. Have you? Uh, yes. So pros of deadlifting suit is if you can nail it, you will lift significantly more weight. Um, 
it ranges depending on how good you are in a suit. Some, some guys, girls are fantastic in a suit and some are appalling and they choose not to wear one. If you can use a suit in your competitions, wear it. If it's a competition coming up where they'll let you wear a suit, get it on. Um, <clears throat> so in terms of pros, you're going to lift a lot more weight. Anytime you see Eddie Hall or Thor do these world records, they're in a suit and for good reason, because they add a lot of weight. Um, uh, you know, some some um, so basically they make you lift more weight and they keep you really super tight. I was going to say, is that just because they're so tight? They it well, it's like um, it, it it's hard to explain. It's like it's horrible. It's it's hell on earth when you lift them one. They're they're they're, they're revolting. They're, it's not a nice experience and it does take a bit of a while to get used to. Okay, um, but they do work and they help you lift more weight. It's similar to when you put your you do a squat and you put on knee wraps, you lift more weight instantly. Um, well, generally speaking, because of the way the material fits around you and the stiffness it creates. So cons of deadlifting in a deadlift suit are it's horrific. It's really not nice. It's very hard to do on your own. It is durable. You know, Tony Cliff's a world champion. He lifts in uh, home and equipment, um, his own equipment. Uh, it is hard to do on your own. Um, and other cons are it's just, it's not, it's really, really nasty. And it takes a while to either work into your suit or find the right suit. A lot of people have their um, equipment tailored to them. So they'll take it to, I think it's a seamstress or I don't know what yeah. you call them to, to sort it out. They'll take it out. They'll take it in. They'll move things around so, to make it work. For them. Um, depends what federation you live in. Uh, lift in. Say, so if you're lifting in um, IPF, you need to do um, single plies so you don't you're not allowed adjustable straps if you're doing strong man just get a you can just i think you're allowed to wear anything pretty much so just a lot of the guys will have you'll see with the adjustable straps over to get really nice and tight um some guys say it really helps them lift um raw as well so i've seen some guys claim lifting in a suit has helped them lift better without a suit you know i think there's a bit of a myth in that um equipped lifting guys are weaker or not very good or don't know how to lift otherwise i think yeah there are some like that but generally speaking like it takes a special kind of nutcase to put a bit of equipment on that's going to make you lift a ridiculous amount more than what you're already capable of yeah. i will say with deadlift suits they don't add anywhere near as much as the squat and bench suits do um the search that they don't have the same increase generally speaking i've seen guys maybe add 20 to 30 kilos by putting a suit on um so whereas i've seen guys add you know you know, like one to 200 kilos more on their squat and bench presses. We're talking thousand pound bench presses from people wearing shirts. It's insane. It's, it's mind boggling that someone would put, you know, like four, 500 kilos over their face. It's, yeah. it's crazy. But um, pros are, it will help you lift a lot more weight. It might ease the pressure off some areas, maybe, maybe, but cons are it's, it's fucking horrible and it's not the easiest thing to lift. Yeah. Um, only thing I'd probably add to that would be is, as well, you need to, it's going to then limit your options in terms of the federation that you're going to be lifting with. Because I don't think all, I don't know really if, I don't know that much about powerlifting, but I'm guessing some feds. I think Naomi does like a lot of strong women. I think she works with Rianne, I think. So it's kind yeah. of, any any suit's good. Just Makes go wherever you want. Okay, so... Uh, last question from listeners, and then we can do R. So, does working for two goals or multiple goals at once work? For example, strength and fat loss, high tripping strength. I currently have main lift that trains improve strength, then assistance work times two aimed at weakness, then two for hypertrophy and some conditioning cardio at the end. Um, do you want to take the strength and hypertrophy one? Uh, and I'll take if you're working for strength and fat loss um yeah yeah it does work it can it can of course it can work um would is it optimal maybe maybe not but 
you know, a lot of guys run DUP systems where they're training multiple aspects of their lift strength, you know, um, strength, uh, P, um, hypertrophy and a bit of endurance as well. So yeah, I absolutely think you can run them all at the same time. I think, you know, I, I do like traditional sort of block periodization, but I'm a big fan of throwing loads of things in as well. I mean, I've worked with James in the past, so what he set up is, you know, very similar to what I think he should be doing anyway. Um, uh, being a strong man as well, he needs to work on all of those things. You know, yeah. something to, you know, the season in a log press, then he's going to do some pin presses for it to hammer his triceps. Then, you know, a couple of exercises to build up his um, delts and then his rear delts and a couple of things and then a bit of conditioning at the end. Yeah, I, I think you certainly can work multiple girls at once. I think the tr problem happens when you get deep into that phase. So if you're wanting to get really strong and get shredded at the same time, I think after about 12, 16 weeks, you're going to run into some big issues yeah. for short term. Or if you're just kind of, you know, training. Yeah, of course you can. You can, you can work loads of different things at once. Yeah. So completely agree. Uh, same in terms of like body composition. At first, you're not going to see a massive uh, detriment by being kind of in a calorie deficit the longer that you're in a calorie deficit and the more body fat that's kind of coming off you, the more detrimental performance it's then going to become as your body essentially goes further and further into fight or flight mode. Um, so when you're, when you're super lean, unless you're pumping a lot of drugs into your system, then you're not going to maintain kind of the strength that you had when you were at a higher body fat percentage. Is it, are you able to get stronger and leaner at the same time? Yes, you are but it's not like indefinite and it also depends on how much you want to take either of those aspects. So if you want to get really strong, you're probably not going to be able to get really lean at the same time. Same thing if you're trying to build the maximum amount of muscle possible or get as strong as possible, then picking one or the other would be better. However, if you're trying to be more of like a hybrid athlete, like the sounds of it, you're a strong man, you've got to be able to be massively strong but you've also got to be able to move like just being a big fat blob probably isn't going to help when you've got to take a a yoke and walk it for however long or whatever these crazy bloody events and stuff that they have um however like i'm not being funny the the strongest guys in the world don't tend to be that lean unless you're marius pudzianowski and just a genetic freak yeah, um, I mean, what's then that Russ Swell guy? I've forgotten his um, surname. He's 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 unbelievable. He's in un unbelievable shape. There are there are guys who are in crazy shape. I mean, uh, I think we've kind of covered it, really. Yeah, you can do it. Is it the best way to do it? No. Um, I've I've had myself and other athletes um, go for a competition, and on the last week or so, there's that much weight that they've been shit on the day for me personally as well I had a shocker at my last comp because I lost so much weight in such a short period of time so it's not optimal but for you James um, do it it's a good way to train and then don't reward yourself with treats all the time <laughs> you know what I'm talking That's about knowing that person well okay so your question what's the hardest session you've ever done um is that in terms of like feel like how i felt when i was in the session or just what's the hardest hardest session you've ever done okay um for me it would have been when my mate decided let's do gbt but obviously gbt you don't just do it on one body part but he made it to do it on all three of the big lifts in the same session because okay. he had no fucking clue what he was doing in terms of programming so that's probably the hardest session I ever did. It was about three hours long 
and I don't think I could walk for about a week afterwards. And it was only after that fact I then went and read what GV, and it was like, you're meant to do one movement for 10 sets of 10, not three of the biggest compound movements, and do them all. And, oh, yeah, he was, I was, we, wow. we very nearly fell out about that. <laughs> that was outstanding. Uh, I'm probably going to say pre-season at Harlequins is some of the hardest stuff I've ever done. Yeah. Um, especially because you wanted to make an impression because you knew there and it was tough. Um, but I think Hill Sprints in Richmond Park are some of the hardest things I've ever done. Um, nice. Another one we used to do was, in fact, now it was, yeah, Hill Sprints in Richmond Park. I think we did 15 to 20, which was insane at the time. But uh, what they did is they, they tried to break you while you were doing it. So right. they really tried to make sure they said you were done. You go back, start walking, and they make you march back and go do it again. Okay. Kind of still mental toughness, all that kind of yeah. stuff. And it was the kind of, kind of session that mentally breaks you. And it was really tough. And you couldn't really see, you know, there's, there's nowhere to hide. They make you line up against all your um, same sort of positions. Everyone's fighting for the same position. They want you to work hard. And it's, it, 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 it was long enough. I think it was about a 45-second sprint, maybe, up a hill that got steeper as you went up. Right. It wasn't, it wasn't so steep that you couldn't move, and it wasn't so flat that you could cruise. It just was the perfect incline to just keep you ball busting the whole time. Right. It's the kind of session. It's the kind of session where you don't know if you're going to get through it. Whereas, you know, I say um, sessions normally really tough sessions have a kind of uh, mountain format to them, where you start off feeling really good, you're going to get through this. You get forward a bit, suddenly it's getting really hard. Then you're in hell. You're not sure if it's going to finish, and then you get to yeah, you kind of know you've got one or two left, and then you get through it. But um, yeah, I'd, I'd say Hill Sprint and uh, Upper Richmond Park were probably the hardest I've ever done. Yeah. Okay. And then scroll back up to ah, oh, promise I've lost my question. Uh, I think it was something about body fat percentage. Body fat percentage. What is it useful for? Not so useful for how it's measured and its accuracy. So. Body fat percentage, what's it useful for? It's basically, no matter what you're measuring it on, it's an estimate. Um, because the only accurate way to actually measure body fat, body fat percentage is on a cadaver, which isn't very uh, useful to the average person. So essentially what it is, is a percentage of your total mass that is body fat. So um, what it's useful for is obviously if we're trying to change body composition, the percentage of body fat is going to be very important to that. So the lower the percentage of body fat in relation to muscle mass is what kind of that toned physique, which is what uh, most people that kind of come to me is looking for. Now, when in terms of measuring it, there's kind of two, the two most popular ways, which is bioelectrical impedance, which is those little scales that you stand on where it sends a little electrical signal around your body and it will give you a body fat percentage at the end. Now, the accuracy of those things is debatable at the best of times, and it's the reliability day-to-day -day where the issue comes in. So if you have uh, more salt, uh, too much water, you're weighing yourself at a different time of day, for women, if it's a certain time of the month, all those things can have a massive impact on what that thing, what that scale is saying in terms of your body fat percentage, which means that can then really mess with your mind. If you've been on it in terms of your training, your nutrition, you jump on that thing and your body fat percentage has jumped up 5% and you're like, oh my God, what's the point in even carrying on? The other way is body is skinfold calipers, but 
that is then practitioner dependent on how good is this person at accurately recording the five sites, seven sites, 12 sites. I've seen people do 20 site body fat percentages. And then it's all about the conversion of those millimeter scores into a body fat percentage. And it's in those equations where a lot of the error is. So if somebody's doing uh, skin fold calipers, you want to make sure that they're properly qualified to be able to do them. And also look at the millimeter changes rather than the body fat percentage change at all. And then finally, what I tend to do is just a visual representation. So I get my clients to send me photos because what they're looking for, their end goal is to look and feel better. So it doesn't actually matter the number that is there. I'm going to look at them and say, right, is your body changing shape? Are you losing body fat from certain areas? Are things starting to come down? Are you going in the right direction? And that just comes from having an experienced coach that's worked with dozens, if not hundreds of clients that are trying to change their body composition. I'm at the point now where I can look at somebody's um, look at somebody's before photos and go, right, you're 25% body fat. I can normally get it to within about 5%, um, which then means they've got a ballpark figure of where they need to go. Like a error of 5% isn't going to make a major difference when you're like accounting for somebody's calories, etc. So I just wanted to explain that and why it's not kind of like the be all and end all when it comes to like calculating macros or calories or things like that, because no matter how good you're measuring or what equations you're using, it's, an, it's a best guess at that. A good coach is then going to tweak that in terms of energy in versus energy out because law of thermodynamics can't be ignored. If you're trying to change body composition, you need to be in a calorie deficit. That's what we're aiming for. Um, cool, that takes us to just before two o'clock. So I know you've got to get off to a session, haven't you? Yeah. Um, so I was on that one, no one, you don't win bodybuilding shows by body fat percentage. It's what you look like. So, that, frankly, I don't think it matters. It's what you look like in the mirror is what's yeah. important. Exactly. Cool. Oh, show, man. Great chat today, as always. Starting to get a, a few different questions, which are good to answer. Um, awesome. I'll get this uploaded ASAP. And 